Chapter Twenty Six of From Jest to Earnest by Edward P. Rowe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Like Many Waters. Chapter Twenty Six On a Crumbling Ice Floe. The plan suggested by their host of sending their sleigh home by the ferry while they crossed in a boat just suited Miss Martell and she proposed having a good, vigorous pull at the oars herself. She had always been fond of out-of-door sports, a taste which her father had judiciously encouraged, and thus had saved her, no doubt, from the life of an invalid, for she had inherited the delicacy of a feeble mother, who years before, in spite of all that wealth could do to prevent it, had passed away. Just at this time Miss Martell was waging that pathetic war with her own heart, which so many women must fight out in silence. And she welcomed eagerly any distraction of thought, anything that would so weary the body that the mind could rest. She dreaded the long, monotonous ride home, and so warmly seconded the new plan that her father yielded, though somewhat against his judgment. Through the little delays of a hospitality more cordial than kind, they were kept until the early December twilight was deepening into dusk. But the oarsman lighted his lantern, and was confident that he could put them across most speedily. The boat was staunch and well-built, and they started with scarcely a misgiving, Miss Martell taking an oar with much zest. Their friends waved them off with numberless good wishes, and then from their windows watched till the boat seemed quite across before drawing the curtains and concluding that all was well. At first they did not meet much ice, and everything promised a safe and speedy passage. But, when they were well past the middle of the river, two dark masses were seen just before them. There appeared to be a wide opening between them, through which they could see water ripple. "'I think we can shoot through,' said the oarsman, standing up a moment. "'Perhaps it will be the safest course, for we don't know what's above.' "'Very well,' said Mr. Martell. "'I will steer you as well I can.' pull strongly till we are again in clear water. Miss Martell bent her supple form to the oar, and her strokes counted as well as those of the strong, practiced man, and the boat sped all too quickly into what afterwards seemed the very jaws of destruction. The opening narrowed instead of widening. The ice above, for some reason, appeared to gain on that below. In growing alarm, Mr. Martell saw that they were becoming shut in, and pointed out the fact to the oarsman. "'Shall we turn around?' he asked excitedly. The man stood up again and instantly decided. "'No, we have not time. The tide is running very swiftly. The ice would close on us before we could get around. Our best chance is to push through. I can see water beyond.' They bent to their oars again, with the energy which danger inspires, but there was not time. The opening closed too rapidly. Suddenly the bow struck the upper cake, and being well out of the water, ran upon the ice, causing the boat to take in water at the stern. For a second it seemed that they would be overturned and drowned at once. But just at this moment the upper cake struck the lower ice, and the boat, being well upon the first cake, was not crushed between the two masses, as would have been the case had the ice closed against its sides while they were deep in the water. For a moment they were saved, while the upper and lower floes crunched and ground together under the keel. 
lifting the light craft still further above the tide and throwing it over on one side without a second's pause the now consolidated field of ice swept downward carrying with it the wedged and stranded skiff the lantern gleamed on the pale faces of those who realized that they had just passed through a moment of supreme peril and perhaps had before them as great if not equally imminent dangers the oarsman hastily examined the boat and found that it had been injured though to what extent he could not tell water was oozing in slowly from some point near the keel but they were too high out of the water to know whether more dangerous leaks had been made they tried to break their way out but found that the two cakes had become so joined together as to form a solid mass upon which they could make no impression they called aloud for help and miss martell's plaintive cry was blended again and again with the hoarse strong shoutings of the men but the river was wide the tide swept them out toward its centre the evening was cold and bleak few were out and these so intent upon reaching warm firesides that they never thought of scanning the dark waste of the river and so to all the cries for aid there was no response save the gurgling water that sounded so cold as to chill their hearts and the crunching of the ice as the rushing tide carried them downward and away from the gleaming lights of their own loved home downward and past the lights from mrs marchmont's mansion where even in her peril poor alice martell could picture harcourt at addie's side and she forgotten as the imagined scene rose vividly before her the wild thought passed through her mind since it must be so perhaps i can find more rest beneath these waters than in my home yonder it may be for the best after all and god designs mercy in what at first seems so terrible as people saw miss martell's quiet and rather distant bearing in society as many admired her chiselled and faultlessly refined features they little imagined that as within snowy mountains are volcanic fires so within her breast was kindling as passionate a love as ever illumined a woman's life with happiness or consumed it with a smouldering flame but death is stern and uncompromising and snatches away all disguises even those which hide us from ourselves in bitterness of heart the poor girl learned while darker than the night the shadow of death hovered over her how intense was her love for one who she believed loved another but if a hand's breath away beneath the rushing tide there was a remedy for the pain at her heart why need she fear my child said a tremulous voice then with a natural and remorseful rush of love for one who had been as tender towards her as a mother since that mother commended her to his care she put her arms around him and whispered i am not afraid father mother and heaven may be nearer than we think thank god my child thank god you are not afraid i was trembling for you not myself you are young and i trusted that there was a happy life before you but the home where mother is promises me far more than the one yonder whose lights are growing so faint i am not afraid dear father i am content if it is god's will to go to that better home and be with you and mother god bless you my child and blessed be the god of mercy who has given you so true a faith it would be terrible to me beyond words if now you were full of hopeless dread but the poor oarsman had no such faith 
only the memory of his dependent wife and children, and his material life, which never before had seemed so sweet and precious. He kept shouting for aid until exhausted, and then despairingly sat down to await the result. Mr. Martell, in the true Christian spirit, sought to impart to his humble companion in peril some of his own confidence in God's mercy and goodness, but in vain. An intelligent, sustaining faith cannot be snatched like a life-preserver in the moment of danger, and the man appeared scarcely to heed what was said. Downward, and past the twinkling lights of many comfortable homes, the remorseless tide still swept them, until the huge outlines of the two mountains at the portal of the highlands loomed out of the darkness. "'If we get down among the mountains, we might as well give up,' said the oarsman sullenly. "'We might as well be cast away at sea as down in that wild gorge, though for that matter it seems to-night as if one's neighbors wouldn't step out of doors to keep a body from drowning, unless it is according to the old saying, "'None so deaf as them as won't hear.' But there was nothing strange in the fact that they had been unnoted. The north wind blew their voices down the river. There was a noisy surf upon the shore, and those who chanced to see the light supposed it to come from some craft hastening to its winter quarters near the city. So fate seemed against them, and they drifted down and down until the black shadow of Storm King swallowed them up. But now they became conscious that their motion was growing less steady and rapid, a little later, and the flow apparently paused in its downward progress, and there was only some slight movement caused by the increasing gale. Then came what seemed interminable hours of weary waiting under the somber shadow of Crownest Mountain, the strange and almost irresistible drowsiness that severe cold induces began to creep over Miss Martell, but her father pleaded with her to fight against it, and more for his sake than her own she tried. They took turns in endeavoring to break the ice around them with the boat-hook. The exercise kept their blood in circulation, but was of little avail in other respects. The ice was too heavy and solid for their feeble strokes. At last the tide turned, and the dreary, monotonous waiting in their hopeless position was exchanged for an upward movement that would soon bring them above the mountains again where from the thickly peopled shores there would be a better chance of being seen and rescued there was no certainty that they would be missed and therefore sought for as the coachman not finding them on his return might conclude that they had been prevailed upon to remain all night with the friend they were visiting but any exchange from the black rayless shadows that surrounded them would be a relief and it was with a faint feeling of hopefulness that they recognized their movement northward which slowly increased in speed as the tide gained mastery of the slight natural current of the river. The strengthening northern gale had thrown up quite a sea, and the experienced oarsmen soon saw that the ice-field by which they were surrounded was breaking up under the influences of the waves. This might at last bring relief or increase their danger, if the ice should all break up around them and leave their boat tight and sound, they could tow ashore. If the boat had been, or should become, so injured as to leak badly, it might fill with water before they could reach land. Thus, in any case, the trying nature of their peculiar position was aggravated by a terrible uncertainty and suspense. As they emerged from the highlands into the broad waters of Newburgh Bay, their worst fears seemed about to be realized. 
Here, for many miles, the north wind had an unrestrained sweep, and the waves grew larger and more violent. Under their increasing force, the ice floe crumbled around them rapidly, until at last little was left save the mass of double thickness caused by the union of the two large cakes between which the boat had been caught. This, at last, began to give under the weight of the boat, and led it more deeply into the water. Then, to their dismay, they saw that the seams of the boat had been so wrenched apart that the water came in rapidly. They tried to keep it down by bailing. The frosty gale tossed Mr. Martell's white hair, while with his hat he worked, in pathetic earnestness for the sake of his daughter. But in spite of all that he and the oarsman could do, the water gained on them, wetting their feet and creeping up their legs with the icy chill of death. Every moment or two the man would pause in his work and send forth a cry of such terrible power and earnestness that it would seem someone must hear. Again Alice Martell saw the distant lights of her own home, but she turned from them to those that gleamed from the nearer resident of Mrs. Marchmont. Was he there, safe and happy, looking love into the eyes of Addie Marchmont, while every moment she sank lower into the cold river? The thought sent a deeper chill to her heart than the icy tide from which she could no longer keep her feet. "'God and man is agin us,' said the oarsman savagely. "'What is the use of trying any longer? The sooner it's over, the better.' And he was about to give up in despair. Alice, with equal hopelessness of any earthly aid, was about to turn her eyes from the faint rays which, barbed with the thoughts suggested above, pierced her heart like arrows, when the throwing open of the hall door by Hemstead let out such a broad, streaming radiance as attracted her notice. By calling the attention of the others to it, she inspired in them a faint hope. But when, soon after, the door was closed, and the lights had their usual appearance, the flicker of hope sank down into deeper darkness. Alice turned to her father, and with a oneness of spirit and hope that needed not outward expression, they silently lifted their thoughts from the dark earth to the bright heaven whose portals they soon expected to enter. Just then a voice from earth recalled them to earthly hope and the prospect of human help. It was Hemstead's shout of encouragement from the shore. Then they saw the glimmer of a lantern moving hither and thither. A moment later it became stationary, then shot out towards them. With cries of joy they recognized that they had been seen, and that an attempt to rescue them was being made. In the apathy of their despair the water had gained dangerously, but with the energy of hope that is ever greater than that of fear or despair they set to work anew. Again the wintry winds tossed Mr. Martell's white hair, as for want of something better he bailed with his hat, and Alice's little numb hands were lifted every moment as if in pathetic appeal, as she dipped them in the ice-cold water at her feet and threw out a tiny cupful, which the gale carried away in spray. "'Come quick! We can't keep afloat much longer!' cried the oarsman. "'Aye, aye!' shouted the ex-sailor in a voice as hoarse as the winds in the cordage of his old ship. "'Courage!' cried Hemstead, and his tones, in contrast, rang out like a bugle, inspiring hope in the chilled hearts of those who a little before had despaired, and also sending an almost equal thrill of delight to the heart of Lottie Marston, as, with the half-frenzied Harcourt, she stood in Mrs. Marchmont's open door. 
The sailor coachman was a good oarsman, and Hemstead pulled fairly. Both were very strong, and they drove the boat through the short, chopping waves, rather than over them, caring not how much water was shipped. A little later came the shout, Quick, quick, the ice is giving under us, and the boat sinking. Oh, come, save my father, cried Alice Martell, in a tone that might have moved the very ice around her to pity. My child, my child, came the agonized voice of the father. Never think of me if you can save her. Hemstead's nature was anthracite, and now glowed at white heat in his grand excitement. He was no longer a man, but a giant, and would have ruined everything, snapped his oars, dragged the oar-pins from their sockets, thus rendering his massive strength utterly useless, had not the cool, wary ex-sailor taken command of the little craft, and insisted on seamanship. Under his skillful direction the student was like a powerful engine, with a steady, measured stroke and the boat fairly flew, until their oars struck floating ice, and then they had to slacken up, for to strike a mass of ice at their speed would be to sink at once. "'Steady now,' cried the ex-sailor. "'You pull. I will stand and steer.' Their boat was roughly grazed several times, but glided through without serious injury. "'Now or never,' cried the oarsman. "'We're sinking.' Alice hid her face on her father's breast. Life had grown strangely sweet during the brief time since, at Hemstead's voice, hope had revived, and it seemed a bitter thing to perish, almost within the grasp of rescuing hands. "'Oh, come,' groaned the father. "'Great God, this is hard!' With a despairing cry she heard the water rush and gurgle around her, and closed her eyes, not expecting to open them again in this world but strong hands grasped and lifted her drenched, helpless form tenderly into the boat. With mingled hope and fear she looked up, and by the lantern's light recognized Frank Hemstead. "'My father,' she gasped. "'Safe, my darling, thank God,' said Mr. Martell, taking her into his arms. "'And they have pulled our stout oarsmen in, too, so we are all safe.' "'Well, I hope so,' said the ex-sailor, with a little depressive dubiousness. "'We shipped a side of water coming out. There's a deal of ice running, and so chopped up one can scarce see it. I must be skipper and all, mind, if we are to come safe out. Here, Mr. Hemstead, you bail, and you, messmate, if your hain't shipped too much water yourself. I'll sit well up towards the bow, where I can see and pull round the ice.' Besides, with this cargo, we've got to cross the waves kind of easy and careful, or they'll swamp us. Thus, in this instance, the ex-sailor appeared a special providence, and gradually took them out of the ice-strewn tide in the center of the river, to smoother, clearer water near the shore. Soon after, drenched and half-frozen, they reached Mrs. Marchmont's boathouse. Miss Martell's power of endurance were nearly exhausted and when the lantern held aloft revealed harcourt's pale face when she knew that it was his arms that received her in her helplessness and she heard him murmur i now believe there's a merciful god and thank him in the strong reaction of feeling she became unconscious End of chapter twenty six